the great human rights violations are taking place now, as we're speaking. So we need to have alternative accountability mechanisms to fight against impunity that is in, in, in Venezuela right now. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Today we have another Venezuela conversation, but uh, before we get to it, we'd like to remind you that if you like our show, you can support us on Patreon and get extra episodes of our War Criminals book club, where Janet and Molly and I read a book, watch a movie about war crimes and war criminals. Yeah, that's every month. But if you just want to give us uh, a one-off contribution, you know, you don't want to join up with Patreon, you can also visit our support page. And as always, thank you all for listening. So recently we chatted with Marta Valinas and Johanna Frivet on what is going on in Venezuela now, and we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we talked about uh, who's investigating what, because we've got the findings of the UN fact-finding mission and the panel of experts of the Organization of American States on Venezuela, and of course the International Criminal Courts investigation. We looked a bit at its uh, setbacks and how the Office of the Prosecutor is handling cooperation with the authorities in Caracas. But now we're looking at other possible venues for getting justice uh, for the victims of the crimes allegedly committed by the Venezuelan authorities, and that is via our old friend, Universal Jurisdiction. Yeah, Marta mentioned a UJ case going on in Argentina, so we thought we'd dig a little bit deeper into that with two legal experts who've worked to bring the case into the Argentine courts. We have Dalila Seoane. Hi, Dalila. Hello, nice to meet you. Thanks for the invitation. Dalila is a gender prosecution expert and a crime analyst for Justice Rapid Response. And in the context of the crimes being committed in Venezuela, she has been deployed to support the Clooney Foundation for Justice with the filing of the cases before the Argentinian courts. But she is also the Colombia and Peru program director for the Center of Climate Crime Analysis. And together with Dalila, we have Ignacio Hoftes joining us from Buenos Aires. Hi, Ignacio. Hi, Janet. Nice to meet you both. Ignacio is the Senior Program Manager with the Docket Initiative of the CFJ, leading the investigations they're doing into Venezuela, and he was also the former Program Director at Amnesty International Brazil. So I'm going to give you a quick summary of what has happened, and likely it's going to be slightly flawed and very, very superficial, but I hope our experts will jump in with more details. On June 14th this year, the Clooney Foundation filed a complaint before the Argentine federal justice system saying that the country must investigate the human rights violations committed in Venezuela based on the principle of universal jurisdiction. The CFJ, or the Clooney Foundation, is representing family members of two Venezuelans killed during 2014, the events we discussed recently where dozens of people died and were wounded um, in uh, anti-government protests. And the evidence they collected point to crimes against humanity, against victims linked or perceived to be linked to the government's political opposition. 
And just a month later, on July 13th this year, the Argentine federal prosecutor, Carlos Tonelli, picked up on this complaint and launched an investigation. He said that the complaint pointed to the responsibility of several high-ranking members of the Venezuelan National Guard in these human rights abuses during the 2014 street protests against the government of President Nicolas Maduro. And we read in an Associated Press piece that the prosecutor has called for documents from the United Nations, the OAS and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and, of course, from the ICC. And we talked about, as we've just mentioned, you know, what some of those organisations have come up with already. So, should we kick off? I was wondering whether I could ask uh, either of you, was this a surprise that the prosecutor kind of took your suggestions and ran with it so quickly? Ignacio, were you surprised? I think we were surprised for the speed of the decision. Uh, we were quite confident that what we were filing was something solid and, you know, the investigation could be open in, based on what we filed. But yeah, if you take into account the precedents, there are all the other UJ cases in Argentina took years to, to get this stage. So for us, it was quite surprising to, yeah, to see the speed of the opening of the investigation. Uh, of course, we were quite uh, pleased about it. And Dalila, what did you think about this uh, rapid response, pun intended? Well, yeah, of course, I support what Ignacio mentioned. The personal level, I think that Argentina has like a very long history on prosecuting international crimes, not only in relation to the the history of the country. I mean, within the DNA of the country is prosecuting these type of crimes. It happened, for example, with the military junta when we had the dictatorship. And also the fact that is Argentina is one of, I would say, the only country that has a case of pure universal jurisdiction. I'm not talking here about extraterritorial jurisdiction as such, but there's a lot of work done through like different mechanisms. And, and I think that also the, the reflect of what Ignacio was mentioning, the, the, the fact that this case was open and also quite rapidly is also because of the of the path of other victims that were also trusting in the Argentinian justice too, such as Myanmar, such as the Franco dictatorship. What's a bit surprising for me is the idea that we already do have different processes going on. And we'd looked really at the investigation side in our last podcast, so we know that there's a mass of evidence. But then we've also got this actual investigation going on in The Hague and maybe sort of pushing towards complementarity, pushing the Venezuelan authorities. So why is it that universal jurisdiction case is needed as well? Well, I, I always say that complex situations require complex solutions. And if we think about international crimes in general, I think that the international community as such has to have an answer here. And when I talk about international community, it's not only about a kind of diffuse block of countries, but as the ICC or the UN system, for example, through the agencies, but also the national countries. Because, I mean, if we think that the primary obligation is for the states to investigate international crimes, there's a lot of countries from the Second World War, First World War, and even before that, that had established within the Geneva Conventions, there's a lot of mechanisms that always were implemented by state in, in relation to the obligation they have as a state. So I think that this complex solution, which is articulating different mechanisms within the ICC, within the fact-finding mission, 
within national authorities. This is part of the concern of the international community to tackle an issue as we have here. And Ignacio, before we get into the details of this case, what could a universal jurisdiction case in Argentina bring victims in Venezuela that an ICC investigation can't, apart from the fact that obviously now this case seems to be moving a bit quicker in, in through Argentina jurisdiction than, than what the ICC has shown so far? Something that's very important to take into account in the context and the situation we are referring now is that the grave human rights violations are taking place now, as we're speaking. So for me, the, the, the question is the other way. We need to have alternative accountability mechanisms to fight against impunity that is in, in, in Venezuela right now. The ISIS investigation is very important. It's key. It's the first investigation in Latin America, as you know. It definitely needs support, and we have to support it, and, and so on. But at the same time, we need other, other uh, channels to fight against that, that impunity. We know that ISIS investigation will take time. There are map investigations that, you know, for, for the nature of the investigation, it will take a lot of time. And we need, you know, other answers and other jurisdictions that, given the fact that Venezuela is not investigating whatsoever uh, this kind of grave human rights violations, then other, other states, other jurisdictions have to step in and investigate and, yeah, provide uh, this uh, justice for victims that are, as I said, they're shouting for justice today. You know, things are happening, to, uh, are still happening today. So we need other states to jump in and collaborate and, and contribute to whatever they, they can do to provide justice for victims. So can you give us a bit of insight, Ignacio, into how this started in that sense? I mean, how did a case like this take shape? I understand you can't say a lot about the victims, but maybe you can give us some indication. I mean, is it that you're taking the information from some of these investigative bodies or are victims approaching you? How does it work? Yeah, you know, from the Clooney Foundation for Justice, we... We started to work on, as I said, an alternative accountability mechanisms for Venezuelan uh, victims. And of course, the UJ principle was key in this uh, analysis. And so we started to analyze the different possibilities that we, we had. And of course, we knew that Argentina was applying, that there are some precedents in which Argentina is applying, as Dalila was saying, the pure UJ. This means that the justification that the precedents on UJ investigations in Argentina gave uh, doesn't have any connection with the country. The, the justification to activate the UJ principle is the gravity of the crimes. So we knew, we knew that. And so then we started to study th those cases and see what kind of requirements, what, kind, what, what elements do we needed to show to Argentinian justice in order to activate the universal jurisdiction. So we started to, we already have been working for some years now on, on Venezuela. We already have contacts and relationships with many grassroots organizations. And through them, we ended up selecting two cases that we thought that had the evidence that we needed to, to have in order to make the UJ real in this case. No? So there are these two cases on great human rights violations committed in the context of protest in February 2014 in Venezuela. As you said, for Security reason, I'm not able to provide a lot of information about the, the cases, but what we thought is that we have enough evidence and solid evidence to 
you know, to file before the Argentinian justice to activate the investigation. So we, we managed to file 15,000, more than 15,000 pages of annexes with uh, evidence about these particular victims. So this was one of the reasons. We really tried, we wanted to do something that goes beyond the symbolic side. That could be, we really wanted to open the investigation, this investigation to continue and to develop. And this is why we thought that we had these two cases that are solid, that have enough evidence, and Argentina would be able to, yeah, to open the investigation, and this actually happened. And just for our listeners who are maybe not super into the universal jurisdiction, when you talk about pure universal jurisdiction, you mean that in this case, in a lot of countries that have universal jurisdiction, a lot of European countries, they require some link to the countries that you have. So either the victims are have d- dual nationality or reside in the country that the uh, universal jurisdiction case is uh, or the perpetrators. Uh, now, what I understand from you is you selected these people uh, based Based on the strength of the case that could be made for what happened to them, and they don't necessarily have any links to Argentina or needed to have dual nationality. So you're in that sense, you could really select, I guess, the strongest case from the evidence you had, rather than you had to go the kind of French route where you have to be super complicated and find somebody with dual nationality to bring a case. Yeah, yeah, this is exactly as you explained, uh, Stephanie. Basically, Argentina and the two presidents that are open in Argentina, the justification from the judge in order to open the investigation is the gravity of the crimes. There are two cases, one related to the crimes committed in Spain during the Franco period, and another one is the case on um, genocide against Rohingyas in Myanmar, right? In the first case, in the Spanish case, even though the judge had the chance to make an argument because one of the victims had a dual citizenship, Spanish and Argentinian, they didn't use that. The, the justification was the gravity of the crimes. You know, for example, in Spain, there were many cases open, not now because there, there were some law reforms and they closed all the investigations. But even though we were talking about all the time about UJ cases, actually, they were not exactly UJ cases because in all those cases, you had a connection with Spain. Either the victims were Spanish or the perpetrator were uh, in, in Spain or something like that. In the case that we are talking here, Argentina had applied and is applying the UJ without any kind of connection. And this allowed us to focus on, as you said, the strength of the case rather than to try to find connections like nationality or the victims being in Argentina. And Dalida, going back to you, how have you been supporting the investigation that led to the claim? And you've worked in the field of strategic litigation before for the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. What's the strategic thinking behind this claim and how do you really balance with what you want and what is feasible, what is desirable, and what is practical? Well, first of all, like as an expert on strategic litigation, like for, for justice right response, also I was called for, for this task and asked whether I wanted to, to be part of, of this team also because of the experience that I have in Argentina as a litigator, but also as a prosecutor. And that's why I had the opportunity to collaborate with uh, the Clanif Foundation, in particular with the team that was led by, by Ignacio. And this was part of a very nice work, a very teamwork uh, and, and collaborative effort, because there were many partners involved. And of course, uh, Ignacio or Nacho, how we call in Argentina, all the Ignacios we call Nachos. This was part of, of this team of different expertise that were put together. So this is 
first of all, part of the of the of the work. No, identifying who can help in what part, because of course we are not expert in all the issues. <laughs> we try to focus on the things that we can really collaborate. And I don't know if you are familiar with the work of Justice Rapid Response. But we, as an experts, we also work in a very collaborative uh, way. Of course, we don't replace local expertise because there's a lot of work and there's a lot of expertise with the teams that we work. But the idea is to support them in the things that, because of the experience we have, in the background we have, to collaborate. To like, It's a kind of peer-to-peer -peer work because we think together, we try to analyze these complex situations and we try to see how is the best way to put all our brains together and to support from our backgrounds. In, in my case, it was this mixture, mixture between working as a strategic litigation expert plus their Argentinian background. So the idea was to find, yeah, I mean, some specific aspects because, of course, as we were talking before, UJ in Argentina is, 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 a, is a fact. It, I mean, it has been used in the past, but there are some, even though there's, there's no need of having this link with the country, which is real, and that happened, is the only country now that we, we have this kind of purest universal jurisdiction, there's some practical considerations to have to be considered. No? If you want to have a case, you also have to know how to say or how to present the evidence, how you can facilitate the work of a judge, because we are talking about trials that are being uh, held like thousands of kilometers from the place where those crimes were committed. So we have issues in terms of evidence, how to gather evidence, how to protect victims, how you can identify perpetrators. So it's also about giving the judiciary and the prosecutors like a case that they want to take, no? And, and to build that case with all the elements, procedural elements that will facilitate the task of a judge thousands of kilometers away to investigate those crimes. I'm wondering, I, I can understand kind of all the practical considerations uh, you have there to, to kind of push the, the prosecutor along, but you've got victims at the centre of this process, uh, Dalila. How can you manage to centre the process around them? I mean, what about safety issues? Well, first of all, I mean, I cannot mention specific like confidential considerations as, as Ignacio was mentioning, but there are other things that you can consider. No, of course, first of all, was thinking how you, I mean, how you build basic complaint, first of all, in terms of sensitive information, the information that you don't want to put written in the main complaint, because of course that can be accessed by people that you don't want to have access. So that were some of basic considerations that were taken. But also there are other type of aspects, not only in terms of, of security, but also communication. Because, I mean, at some point, these cases are not for us, are, are not for Ignacio, not for the international community. These cases are for the victims. And we have to find a way on how to communicate this to the victims, specifically because, again, we are talking about cases that are not being tried in Venezuela. So how the victim can have the daily information, how the victim can be informed, how they can be really part of the procedure and being at the center, of course, with victim-centered approach. So there's like different things, like I would say that security is part of different pillars within the victim certain approach, but also how you manage expectations, because of course, there's a lot of expectation from the media, from different aspects that you have to consider, because one of the chances is that maybe this case, I mean, of course, as Ignacio mentioned, the case was opened quite rapidly, but maybe this is not the case in other situations and you have to inform the victims, you have to inform them on, on how the process is going. 
So yeah, there, there's, I mean, when, when we talk about strategic litigation and I'm bringing an UJ case, it's not only about legal considerations. You have many practical aspects and in relation to victims, you have many other things that you have to have into, into account, which maybe are the same obstacles that you would have in an international trial, I mean, in terms of, or, or in a national trial, in terms of how you protect identities, how you preserve the, the information, how they can be not revictimized uh, during the trial, plus the issues of having a trial that is not in the country, you know, I mean, which of course entails practical considerations, I mentioned in terms of gallery evidence and, and finding the responsible, but also always bringing, bringing back the victim to the center of that trial that is not in the country where the crimes were committed. And Ignacio, just to, to go back to you and, and this point, we saw in some of those UJ cases in Germany, for instance, that there was a big language barrier and it was hard for people to follow. Now, at least that is solved in this case, apart from maybe some Argentinian accents or Venezuelan accents in slang. But what is the plan for outreach? Because we also read a lot about media crackdown in Venezuela. You know, will people in Venezuela, even if there's reporting on this in Spanish and people following it, can that information get to people in Venezuela? That's tricky and it's been difficult. We, we, you know, that's why social media in this case is very important for many Venezuelans. is the main source of information rather than the media, many of the Venezuelan media outlets that either don't, just don't inform about it or they cannot, even though they want to. It's very difficult for them you know, I know a concrete example of uh, some journalists that wanted to have interviews with us to discuss about this and they couldn't make it because they were not allowed to. So we are doing also a big effort to keep informed, like key organizations, victims and key stakeholders in Venezuela about what is going on. And in that regard, the social media becomes like a key uh, channel, you know, of, co of communication. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge that we are facing. Um, can I come back with you, Ignacio, to the findings that, that you presented to the prosecutor again? I, I don't know how much you're able to reveal of what you've put in these, I can't remember how many pages, you know, a lot of pages you said that you have of evidence. I'm wondering about the sort of how high up you think that the prosecutor can possibly go in terms of the chain of command back in, in Venezuela. I mean, is there... Is it the National Guard? Are we talking about commanders? Are we talking about presidency? You know, where could this case end? Something interesting about the proceeding in Argentina, according to Argentinian law, is that you can identify some perpetrators and file a complaint with those perpetrators, but then you can expand that. Yeah, so it's not that once you file the complaint, then you cannot change anything. So far... For strategic reasons and you know, for, for the evidence that we had, as I told you, we focus on the Venezuelan National Guard. But this doesn't mean that this might change in the future while the investigation continues. And just to add on that, I think that Dalila's contribution in the complaint was, was great in general, but in particular in the chain of command analysis and how to present this before the Argentinian justice her contribution was key because she, as she said, she had experience working before in other uh, proceedings and really helped us to, yeah, to put things together according to how we should present the information in Argentina. So, so far we, we are focusing on Venezuelan National Guard, but as I said, this might change in the, you know, why we investigate and investigations uh, develop. 
from a story with documents obtained by my official competitors, the Associated Press, and we will link to the articles in the show notes, that the Argentine prosecutor who picked up the case requested a series of measures that will have to be approved by a federal judge, but these include issuing requests to the Venezuelan justice system to send copies of judicial proceedings and records from hospitals where victims were treated and a list of professionals who treated them and health certificates. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of cooperation from Caracas also maybe based on past experience and how they are cooperating and I'm making uh, air quotes uh, with the ICC. We have a challenge there for sure. We cannot deny it, but we already knew that, right? When we started this this project. And by the way, this also happened in other cases, you know, uh, Spain never co uh, collaborated with investigation open in Argentina and always rejected, you know, to the, the cooperation with Argentina. So we already have other presence in other, in other investigations. What we try to do is to open and diversify the sources and the evidence that, you know, that, that we want to use in order to show things. So to be realistic, we are not expecting like a full and completely open collaboration. Some, sometimes I don't think it's going to be the case. At the same time, we have other sources and we're trying, as I said, to diversify how the Argentinian justice can get information uh, in order to, yeah, to continue the investigation. So, for example, just to give an example, you know, information in relation to the investigation of the, of the UN fact-finding mission or the ICC doesn't need to go through, through the Venezuelan government, right? The same with the testimony of victims. You know, there are ways of doing it without the need of going through the Venezuelan authorities. So we hope that we will manage to, even though with all these challenges, to provide enough information for the, for the Argentinian justice to convince the Argentinian justice that this investigation needs to continue and, and needs to be open. Dalila, as a prosecutor from Argentina, is this kind of the future? Is the future going to be Argentina leading Latin America on universal jurisdiction? And what do you think it will spur uh, neighboring countries on to do? Or what are they already doing looking at Argentina? Or are you a very much a lone horse out there? No, I think that Latin America is a very strong region in terms of accountability. I mean, if we think in general, the work of the Inter-American Court, for example, in terms of reparations, if we think about environmental issues, we, we think many aspects, the Inter-American system is a really rich uh, system, like starting from there, even though it's for state responsibility, not related to international crimes. But if we go through different countries, we see the example of Colombia. I mean, what is happening in Colombia with the Special Jurisdiction for Peace is like incredible example of accountability mixing transitional justice. You also have a lot of countries like Peru with Fujimori case, like trying the cases during the dictatorship there. We have Chile, we have Brazil. There are, of course, many different efforts. And I think that of course, I mean, also because of, of my experience in Argentina, I think that Argentina has played a very important role in moving forward that, that trend in the region. Again, as I mentioned before, starting with the military, the, the trials against the military junta, this happened in 1985. And again, I mean, that happened starting with the tri trying the commanders of a military dictatorship, which is not something normal for international crimes. I mean, we can see the example of Tadic before the ICDY. He was in a small fish. And normally what happened in the practice is that you start with the small fishes and then you go back to commanders. 
in this particular case, Argentina was different. I mean, they started directly against the commanders. And then when they wanted to go against the, like direct perpetrators or, 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 or indirect perpetrators is when the, the amnesty law were passed. So after that, of course, we had many different situations, of course, among us. And I have to say that I think that there's something interesting between UJ extraterritorial jurisdiction in the DNA of Argentina, because after, as I mentioned before, the, the military trial, the only way for Argentina to get accountability, for example, was through extraterritorial jurisdiction in Spain. So because of the nationality of the victims, what they could do was to bring cases in Spain. And this happened during the amnesty laws. So there's something, there's a contribution that international community had with Argentina that we are taking back to, to victims in other countries. And this is also part of the collective effort that we have to have with international crimes. Because, again, not for us, because of the victims, because the, they are the driving, the driving force of, of these cases. You, you can see in, in all the countries, the ones that are documenting, the ones that are pushing for uh, accountability, the, the ones that are like, pushing for this quest for justice uh, are them. I want to say to both of you, thank you so much for such an interesting deep dive into uh, one situation, one country, you know, but the complexities are all there in this. Dalila, maybe I can start uh, with you with our final questions. Is there something that we should have asked you that we failed to ask you, Dalila, that you would like to mention? Maybe something that I can mention is a key aspect to, to, to develop more in these type of investigations always is the gender aspect behind, because sometimes we, we focus on international crimes, how to go through like universal jurisdiction systems, but always for international crimes, uh, sexual violence, gender-based violence, it's something that comes later. No, I mean, in Argentina, in the ICC, always we have a problem facing these issues and we always have to bring back that because that's uh, of course the impact of gender-based violence in victims not only women of course but also uh, men it's something that goes not only against the individual but the communities and the generation the future generations thank you and ignacio what didn't we ask you or what would you like to add to the, what we what you've already said just uh, to, yeah, again, stress the fact that this was a team effort. We were working with Just Rapid Response. We also worked with Covington that made a pro bono collaboration with us and also with the legal uh, clinic of the Australia University in Argentina. So at the end, was, uh, we were working over a year in this particular complaint with over 20 people uh, participating in this uh, project. So we were a lot of people, a lot of efforts. Of course, with Venezuelan counterparts as well that... Again, for security reasons, we are not able to, to mention. But something that I learned in this process is that they are very complex and it, you really need a lot of expertise. You know, UJ cases are very complicated to put together because you, you need so many information from some different angles, so different, different type of expertise that I think that in this particular case, we managed to put together a, an amazing team that allowed us to uh, file the, the complaint. And so far, the investigation was open and the expectations are are high in a way. And you both sound like you spend a lot of time debating legal cases. And one of our other asymmetrical haircuts question is, do you have a favorite legal case that you like to talk about or that inspired you or that led you to do what you do or that you uh, was just so wild that you always remember it? 
I, I can start with the, the, the case on the Franco case in Argentina. The usual case, it's just amazing. You know, I, I, I had the chance, the opportunity to participate in a way when I was working in Amnesty International on that case. And, you know, to see these four crazy lawyers starting saying, let's start a UJ case in Argentina with nothing was uh, done yet on, on that regard in Argentina now to see not only the impact that in this particular case, the investigation for the Spanish victims had, but also how they opened the door for other victims from other countries, in Myanmar, in this case in Venezuela, it's just very inspiring and very, very, very important. Well, in my case, I have to say that is like my former participation in the trials in Argentina, where I work closely with victims, organizations, being like part of the prosecutor office. I particularly work in the in the case of ESMA, the, the Navy School of, of Mechanics, very well known, like a center, clandestine center of detention. And of course, the things that I, I could see there uh, were terrible in, in different ways. And, and that was the motor to continue working on these topics. Because, of course, by working on international issues, it's not easy working with international crimes. We have to be very aware that we also are facing, of course, like a lot of information that is quite difficult to digest and to, to work with victims. And we, we have to find this balance of not disconnecting from the situation, but also having tools for not being affected that much with, with the content that we, we work with, but also seeing the example of victims. Because if they are still fighting, we, we have to still fight for them. And our final um, asymmetrical haircuts question is, is there anything that you've been reading recently or watching or maybe listening to that you would like to share with the audience? It can be in this field of international justice or it can be something completely different, maybe something you relax to. Dalila, you go first. Well, the movie 1985, to know a bit more about the, the, how to build a complex case, no? And this is something that's interesting to, to watch if you want. But also there are like a lot of documentaries, uh, I don't know, in relation to, to the armed conflict in Colombia and things that are quite interesting because sometimes we discuss many things at the international level, the ICC, etc. But like at the local level in countries in Amer Latin America, but also in, in Africa, there are some very interesting cases around uh, before national jurisdiction that we, we should take the example on, on how trials are, are, are held. And Ignacio, what do you do? Do you, like Dalila, just uh, watch lots of international justice-themed documentaries and listen to podcasts, or do you do something entirely different to get away from it all? I watched 1995 and it's, uh, I really liked it. Uh, but, you know, maybe I can mention, I am Argentinian, but I, I left Argentina 20 years uh, ago. And I am visiting now uh, Argentina. So uh, I am concentrated a lot is in uh, finding restaurants and gast Argentinian gastronomy. So I was, you know, following very, you know, in Instagram, some accounts that, uh, yeah, show an advice on nice restaurants to go. And this was my... The last things that I have done in, in Buenos Aires, and I discovered amazing places to it. Yeah, I don't know what to imagine by Argentine, Argentinian cuisine. I'm imagining... A mix, an amazing mix. You've got the immigrant community, so you've got this amazing mix of stuff there, as far as I know. What do, what, what's your favorite, Ignacia? Well, you know, I like meat a lot. Uh, so here in Argentina, you know, barbecue meat is something something very big. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, small, uh, very small uh, restaurants with two, three, four tables that they have amazing meat. There are also a lot of Italian food as well. 
But, you know, when I come here, I focus on, on meats. <laughs> we will uh, put uh, whatever you uh, recommend uh, in our in our show notes. If people are visiting uh, Argentina and want to know where to eat. Thank you both so much for taking the time to explain this to us. And as this case progresses, I'm sure we'll check back into how it's going. And it's uh, really an interesting case. And uh, we also need to look closer at the Rohingya case in uh Argentina. So this is a little flag for our listeners that that would be also something we're looking at. But um, as always, the folder of the stories we still have to do is always much uh, bigger than whatever we've already done. But thank you so much both for your time. Thanks to you for the invitation. It was really nice. Thank you very Thanks. much. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. <laughs>